Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast where we're reading through the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, if you'd be so kind, can you bring us up to speed on where we were and where are we headed this episode? Oh, Mike, I'd love to do that. So we're partway through HMS Surprise. The surprise herself has survived a big storm in the Southern Ocean. And Stephen and Jack have arrived in Bombay, discovered the delights of Bombay. Stephen made this very touching, but ultimately tragic, doomed connection with his little girl in the slums of Bombay. Stephen's maybe almost recovering now from the emotional trauma of his breakup with Diana and recovering also from the damage he sustained at the hands of the French at the beginning of the novel. But I'm pretty sure that story's not over. So here we are having departed Bombay. They've tried to take Envoy Stanhope all the way to Malaya. He got sick and passed away. So now they've turned back and they're on their way to Calcutta. HMS Surprise just beginning what is the start of a long homeward journey via Calcutta. In the Indian Ocean, Stephen's hoping to encounter Diana in Calcutta and hear from her of her response to his proposal of marriage. And then when that's all done, hopefully set sail and away we go. But something tells me all is not going to go well. The French are out there somewhere in the Indian Ocean. So we have to hear how that all plays out. Of course, there are going to be some twists and turns for Diana and Stephen. Our friend Canning is still on the scene and we have to find out what's going to happen with him. And of course, right at the back of all of this, we've got Jack's relationship with Sophie. He hopes against hope that his engagement to Sophie can be fulfilled and that he can be financially secure and professionally secure enough to get married. We wonder how that's going to turn out as well. Ah, nicely done. So as you say, and here we are sailing towards Calcutta and, and lo and behold, there's a sail, a sail spotted, and we find the China fleet, you know, the entire or, or a great portion of the East India Company ships, 39 of them, and a brig carrying about six millions in merchandise headed towards India and then on to England. Yeah. Um, always nice to run into the East India Company. They do some great whining and dining, uh, which certainly has... Uh, thrilled Jack as they've gone aboard to eat with him. They do. Uh, and, and even though they did a great deal of preparation, it didn't work out so well with for Stephen. <laughs> if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So th- there was this promise held out of entertainment for the sailors from the surprise, as, as we saw in the signal from the East India convoys, um, Commodore or senior captain signaling all ships Pretty young female passengers required dine frigates officers repeat young repeat pretty. This sounded like this was going to be uh, a, a snippet of the social graces and of the fairer sex from home. Um, Stephen and Jack found themselves seated next to some women that perhaps didn't entirely live up to expectations. And after this dinner, Stephen goes back. A he's in a foul mood because he's still not quite sure where he sits with Diana. So he's not his usual gallant self, I think, towards women. And he was really unimpressed with the two sisters that he was sitting next to on this Indiaman. Well, and, and they had the completely bad taste for Stephen to, to say disparaging things about Diana. <laughs> yes, that's right. And Jack referred to these two women as the nymphs in green, the nymphs, these girls wearing green dresses. And this idea of them as nymphs somehow really, really gets on Stephen's wires. And he 
slaps Jack down with one of his multi-adjective put-downs. He says, it's clear that you have been a great while at sea to call these sandy-haired, coarse-featured, pimply, short-necked, thick-fingered, vulgar-minded, lubricious blockheads by such a name. And he goes on to talk about how they're dressed and how they carry on with each other. He says, it bespeaks a superfetation of vulgarity, both innate and studiously acquired. And when I think that their teeming loins will people the East, pray pour me out another cup of coffee, confident brutes. <laughs> no. <laughs> Great. Stephen on form, the kind of speech that, you know, we always, we could, we could kind of trot out that kind of thing at a put down at dinner, but Stephen had it brewing, I think. Right, right. Stephen for everybody, loves the world, so egalitarian, and and just absolutely gets fired up by some folks here. He really does. (laughs) Well, Jack has gotten a few tips about changing his rigging. He puts them uh, into place and is sailing off at great speed uh, when he spots you know, Lenoir and the French fleet who are obviously spread out looking for the China fleet, which, you know, Jack had only left about a day earlier. So uh, there's a a real concern here. As a matter of fact, they are kind of lurching around. Babington is running up to Jack. He falls over in this lurch around and, and slides in at Jack's feet, which um jack responds mr babington this is carrying a proper deference too far and then gives out his orders that he was in the middle of uh babington is is kind of telling him that it, that he's responded to the earlier orders but it says babington seeing the wild glee on jack's face and the mad brilliance of his eye he presumed on their old acquaintance to say sir what's afoot lenoir is afoot said jack with a grin and for all of you other Sherlock Holmes fans out there, to hear what's afoot brings me back <laughs> some fond memories, even though it only occurred once. Oh, well said. <laughs> so here we have the fleet. And we're going to be treated to this fairly drawn-out action sequence, which I really, really enjoyed reading again. We've said a few times before that O'Brien rations himself, I think, to not always committing to action storytelling in the same way and not to overuse things that might be a bit of a cliche. So his way of telling this action story is unusually for him to give us lots of the build-up and lots of the anticipation. Ian, as you say, it, it, it really is. I love the way that he can do these in so many different ways and that they're all equally compelling, at least to me. Yeah. So first of all, Jack gets to do his kind of cat and mouse game. He tried this a little bit with the same French commander with Lenoir back in the novel Master and Commander aboard the Brig Sophie. He was basically trapped by this small French squadron. He tried this trick of doubling back quickly, maneuvering to cut back through their line. It didn't work out then. He plays the same trick now as night falls and it pays off. And all the way through, I'm reading this, looking at how Jack gets to summon all of his guile and his knowledge of his ship and of the situation and of the French ships and how they're handled. He gets to use all of his cunning and all of his tactical knowledge, and it really pays off. I'm thinking to myself, maybe Jack as a character is getting rewarded here for being such a solid citizen and such a great friend to Stephen and keeping everybody's mood going and keeping the ship afloat and safe and swimming. He's really getting to play you know jack aubrey to the max here so 
his initial round of kind of trickery and fancy footwork appears to have got him free from Linois and able to turn back to the convoy at night and warn them and perhaps even avoid the French altogether. Yeah, and it's even even though we're not in action, he still has this yeah. face on as he's figuring this stuff all out. Now, he's got good old-fashioned Jack Aubrey deceptive tricks, you know, apart from the obvious things like sailing under Dutch colours. He hatches this scheme with Babington where the first encounter is going to be with the French corvette, the Berceau, and he arranges for Babington to do this deceptive manoeuvre whereby we'll let a bunch of the rigging come down with a run and look as though we've been badly damaged and we'll light a fire in the cooking pot and that'll make us look like we've been hit in order to give the idea that as we sail away in the direction of the convoy that we've really stuck it to them and that we've sustained some serious damage. And he really delights in this scheme. Another side of Jack's character as a as a, as a leader that we get as they have this encounter with the Berceau, they dish out some pretty severe damage to the Berceau, which is a smaller vessel than the Surprise. And the guns don't cease fire on board Surprise. And it says a forward gun sent a hail of grape along the Berceau's deck, knocking down a dozen men, cutting away her colours. Cease fire there! God rot you all in hell! cried Jack. And he's returning to the the, the old Jack, the Jack that holds up personal honour and likes to think of himself as engaging with an equal... In, in kind of honourable combat. And once he's accomplished what he wants to accomplish, he's happy for the shooting to stop. And we get Stephen later on honouring Jack for this. And we get him talking to Stephen later on, mentioning his adversary in an honourable way. He says, yes, we had a, a brush with the corvette who was so gallant. Um, he came on almost amazingly until the gunner, Mr. Bowes, brought his foremast by the board. Yeah, I, I love it. In, in in the midst of this action, as it's it's clear that they've done incredible damage to this gallant guy who just keeps coming and keeps coming. You know, Jack tips his hat to him, salutes him, and the the French captain salutes back to him. And you think, how different than the encounter with the French officers as he rescued Stephen? Absolutely, it's a really good point of comparison, isn't it? We're we're at sea and we're with the professional navy now, and this is Jack's world, and he's he sees that as a place for honor. The murky world of intelligence and being ashore, that's something else altogether. And the violence is very different. Right. Now, surprise, surprise, as as all you naval history buffs will know or would have suspected anyway, this being an action written about in a Patrick O'Brien book, this is based on a real action. There was a real encounter between a French squadron commanded by Admiral Linois and a British merchant convoy from the East India Company. In the real action, they did indeed disguise themselves as men of war. And in the real action they managed to fight off the French, although in the real action, there wasn't actually a boisterous British frigate on hand. <laughs> the Indian actually took care of what comes next themselves. So truth was even more remarkable than fiction, if you like, that they didn't need the leadership of a, of a frigate captain as it turned out in real life. So Jack has bought some time. As the sun rises, he realized he hasn't been completely successful. And there is the French squadron ready to encounter the East India fleet. And what he has to do is go and recruit the cooperation, the collaboration, maybe even you might say the submission of the captains of the rest of the East India Company's fleet. And Mr. Muffet, the senior captain, is really of Jack's mind. He's really enthusiastic for an active, planned, careful, properly thought out military defense. One or two of the captains in the East India fleet are not so sure. And whereas Jack might be used to giving commands and having his orders obeyed, he has to do a little bit of conciliation and a little bit of diplomacy. And, and a lot of hurting cats. 
yeah, a, a lot of herding cats and a lot of dealing with people with rather different perspectives. This almost reminded me of another movie trope. You know, we've talked before in a podcast about how there are other other ways of telling stories that have perhaps were familiar. We talked about romantic comedy. Um, we've talked a little bit about screwball comedies like The Odd Couple. This description of Jack laying out the scheme to all of his fellow captains reminded me of the planning scene in a heist movie. Right. And I thought, let's go with the idea that Patrick O'Brien might have seen the kind of planning scenes that you always get in the first third of a heist movie. Which one might he have seen? And I thought back to the 1960s, and I thought back to the Italian job with Michael Caine. Now, you'll understand what you've got to do. Okay? Now, Bill. Um, oh, yeah. Um, the transporters will move in here and here, and they'll block off the main drag. Right. Roger. Um... Arthur and Lorna, park the three fast cars here in case anything goes wrong and we've got to make a quick getaway, right? Correct. Now, it's 12.10. The bullion van will be entering the piazza and will be forced slowly towards the centre. Now, the bullion wagon is here, right? Dominic. We get into the minis behind the piazza. Right. Arthur. We drive the Land Rover into the square. <laughs> piazza, Arthur. Piazza. Oh, sorry, Charlie. Piazza. Now... The Land Rover is in the piazza. And we come in right behind Target. That's it. Wallop. So, Jack has managed to get the other captains on board by just about convincing them that there's no alternative and that his scheme has merit and that with the help of him sharing his gunners and his crewmen and even his uniforms, he can help them fight as if they were part of the line of battle of a regular British Royal Navy squadron. And... Jack gets to give a little bit of commentary on this to the chaplain who was left on board, who's clearly in, encountering his his first taste of warfare. And the chaplain says, I must confess that in my ignorance, I expected something more, shall I say, exciting with all these slow, remote manoeuvres, prolonged, anxious anticipation. I was expecting drums and trumpets, banners, stirring exhortations, martial cries, the shouting of captains. And I wonder you can stand the boredom. And Jack says, well, it's just use. We're just used to it. War is nine parts boredom and we grow used to it in the service. But the last hour makes up for all. So Jack's ready for the last hour. He's reviewing the ships in his improvised line of battle. Some of them he obviously really admires and they look trim and organized and their guns are ready and their decks are clear. One or two of them he looks at and he thinks, these people are not entirely ready. God, he says about one of the other captains, never let me outlive my wits. <laughs> and I think we could both uh, we can both say amen to that, eh, Mike? A steady worry of mine. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack's hoping in this chess game with Linois by implying strength and by acting as a coherent body, he and these convoy of merchantmen can fight the French off. And we get this poker match of manoeuvre, and it all seems to be going fine until he realises that Linois is going to be as aggressive as he can be. Linois in the French flagship, the Marengo, turns to cut through the line, a, a manoeuvre that's obviously designed to look for a defensive weakness in the British position and shows that Linois is not caring too much about the state of his ships, not caring too much about how far he is from sources of resupply. He means to fight to win. And I love this exciting moment when Jack realises, OK, my plan has gone fine so far. Now I've got to improvise. And he shouts to the ship astern, back your sail, 
I'm tacking out of the line. And now Surprise has to leave the line intact and he has to go directly in, maybe you might say true Nelson style, directly for the Marengo. And now whereas Surprise before was fighting an action against a smaller ship, Surprise is now fighting an action against a much larger ship and they have to get across the Marengo's bows and we have an action where Surprise has to take some really serious damage herself. And I've got to say, having read lots of fictional and true accounts of, of naval warfare, a lot of the skill in fighting a ship is in damage control. Mm. And if you read any of the accounts of Trafalgar, of the War of 1812, of Jutland, the Malta convoys, sinking the Bismarck, the Falklands in 1982, all of the stories of naval conflict say a ship that stays afloat and, damage, and controls its damage is the one that might well win the day. So a lot of the storytelling here, I think very realistically is about the surprise sailing on and fighting on through damage, damage to the steering gear, damage to the gun ports, damage to the guns themselves, and injuries and deaths to the crew. The Indiamen finally break their line. Linois is threatened with being enveloped not only by the plucky surprise that's now across her bows, but by these clearly organised and warlike Indiamen sailing towards him. He breaks off, the French withdraw, and the day is theirs. Yeah, you, you've had this incredible action going on here. And, and it was beautiful to me the way Jack kind of encouraged the men. He kind of warned them ahead of time, look, we're really going to take a lot of heavy fire. Don't you worry. We're going to get really close to him and then we're going to pay him back. And uh, this transpires. We're kind of waiting in the lull. And then Captain Muffet, the, uh, the Commodore of the China fleet, comes on board. It says the Lushington was the first to reach him and Captain Muffet came aboard. His red face, glorious with triumph, came up the side like a rising sun. But as he stepped onto the bloody quarterdeck, his look changed to shocked astonishment. Oh my God, he cried, looking at the wreckage fore and aft. Seven guns dismantled, four ports beat into one, the boats on the booms utterly destroyed, shattered spars everywhere, water pouring from her lee scuppers as the pumps brought it gushing up from below, tangled rope, splinters knee-deep in the waist and gaping holes in the bulwarks, fore and mainmast cut almost through in several places, 24-pound balls lodged deep. My God, you have suffered terribly. I give you joy of victory, he said, taking Jack's hand in both of his. But you have suffered most terribly. Your losses must be shocking. I am afraid. Yeah. He offers Jack all kinds of, of you know, help to come on board. He, he's just, I think he can't believe how bad the surprise has been pounded. And he even says, you know, let me throw you a line and, and tow you to Calcutta. Yeah, that's one step too far, though, for Jack. <laughs> Basically, as long as I have a mass standing, you know, I am never going to be towed. So they're headed, you know, with the exuberant China fleet and the completely decimated surprise into Calcutta. So not perhaps in the state that they were expecting. Stephen and Jack and the crew of the surprise are heading into Calcutta. They're heading for an encounter with Diana, we hope, but they're riding on this wave of victory and acclaim from this very, very wealthy bunch of people, the East India merchants. And they, they certainly meet that there. They get wined and dined. There are all these parties and speeches. Everybody can't say enough good things. Anybody that's on the surprise is well taken care of in terms of entertainment and uh, you know parties all night. But I, I love that Canning then comes to visit Jack to have a private chat with him. And uh, Canning says, after sort of being shown around the ship and everything, 
privately with Jack. That brings me to the purpose of my visit. I've come at the desire of my associates to find out with the utmost tact and delicacy how they may express their sense of your achievement in something, shall I say, more tangible. And he says, you know, much more than the food and the speeches and all the wines. He goes on to say, you know, something perhaps more negotiable, as we say in the city. I trust I do not offend you, sir. Oh, not in the least, said Jack. Well, now, seeing that anything resembling a direct gratification is out of the question with a gentleman of your kind, and Jack thinks to himself, one of my favorite lines, where, where do you get these wild romantic notions? <laughs> it says, but, I, I remember years ago working for a state regulator and uh, he's being taken out to dinner by a lot of the, the entities that he regulates and he's new to the position. And I think they're feeling him out a bit. And they said, you know, we know that, you know, yeah. we can't turn your head with a little vacation or, you know, a new car or anything. And he says, wait, wait, what kind of car? And <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> probably, yeah. We can probably edit that right out. Model? <laughs> yeah. get, with the tow package? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, this idea of catting, you know, wanting to give Jack something that he can use, but not offend him, being as he is a king's officer. Yeah. And they settle on this idea of freight. Freight is not something I was familiar with, Ian. How about you? No, me neither. I hadn't heard of it until I read about it in the book. So apparently there's a custom by which if you carry something of great value, you get a percentage of the value of what you're carrying. And so Canning offers uh, to have Jack carry back to England some rubies and pearls, sapphires, and Jack realizes that his percentage on this is going to be enough to get him out of debt. So he immediately writes Sophie a letter, which Canning has offered to send overland to reach England well before Jack will in the surprise, having a long refit ahead. Um, you know, the uh, I, I love it. Jack is so enthusiastic here. He tells Sophie, it's no vast, great thumping sum, but it'll clear me of debt set us up in a neat cottage with an acre or two. So you are hereby required and directed to proceed to Madeira forthwith. And here is a note for Henage Dundas, who will be delighted to give you passage. Um, Lose not a moment, he continues later. (laughs) You may knit your wedding dress aboard. (laughs) He says, in great haste and with far greater love, Jack. Oh, P.S. Stephen is very well, and we had a brush with Lenoir. (laughs) It's great. He's he's he's, uh, he's just so close to having everything set up for the rest of his life. He's on the way back to marry the girl that he loves, and they're going to be financially independent, and they'll have a neat cottage. And won't that be just fantastic? Yeah. And you really get the sense, I think, that in all of his gallantry and his friendship and his kind of trueness in this story, he's really earned that. Having maybe in post captain brought a few bad things on himself. I really like the fact that Jack has earned some of what's coming to him in this book. Yeah, a little instant karma here. Yeah. So speaking of earning what's coming to you, I think that we might have earned a cup of tea, perhaps with goat's milk. So perhaps <laughs> now is a good time for everybody else to go and put the kettle on. And we'll be right back after this short break.
Welcome back, you're with The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast, and Ian and Mike are talking about HMS Surprise. Uh, and, and we hope that you're following us on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube even, uh, YouTube, Spotify, Google, and Apple, all places you can get this podcast, as well as from Podbean, our hosting site. That's right. And if you want to engage in the conversation on Facebook, we are facebook.com forward slash lubbers hole. And on Twitter, we are at whole lubbers. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of and share stuff with us. We love it. Yeah. Please keep leaving that feedback. We're delighted to, to read it, to hear about it, and to tweak what we're doing to meet your needs. Definitely. So, Mike, with the convoy saved and rescued and the surprise making a way, you might almost say triumphantly into Calcutta, it's all going to be fine, right? It's plain sailing from here on. I'm I'm feeling a little bit like a Pavlovian dog here because O'Brien has set me up to think whenever (laughs) I have that feeling that it's all wonderful, you know, something, something big is about to drop. And I remember we still have this placeholder for Stephen to come hear what Diane has to say to him about his proposal last time in Bombay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Canning had a, a bit of a plum in the way of a freight deal for Jack. What kind of what kind of fruit, <laughs> sweet or bitter, might be awaiting Stephen when he encounters Diana? Yeah. So it's, you know, Stephen uh, gets himself, rents an elephant to give him a little bit of confidence. Yes. He parades up to Diana's house, you know, gets... Uh, uh, swept into the house past her two tigers chained on the front porch, quite the place there. And after some initial conversation says to Diana, you will remember the last time we met, I begged you would do me the honor of marrying me. Mm. And then for those of us who love Stephen, we cringe a little bit at what follows. Oh, yes. And part of me is thinking, oh man, come on, just, just, Find a way to let it go. I know. <laughs> but every know. moment that he's away from Diana, every moment that he's away from Diana, his thoughts turn back to how can he get back with her again? Well, it's so funny. There was that brief period with the envoy as he's nursing, you know, he's kind of in there all through the night, day and night. And he's thinking, you know, this is my true profession. This is what I'm meant to do, not chase some woman that, you know, I'm not meant to be with. And then, you know, falling off asleep is right back to Diana again. So as you say, it always like, it's like, you know, a moth to the flame. Yeah. And although she did, she had some turns of being nice and agreeable, I think over in Bombay, she really shows herself up to be a, to have a cruel side as she takes this really humble petition from Stephen to say, okay, please marry me. She, she turns it back on him. She says, why didn't you say this long ago in Dover? It would have been different. And then she says, well, why wait till now? Anyone would say I brought myself so low that you could do something quixotic. Indeed, if I were not so fond of you, I might call it a great impertinence. No woman of any spirit will put up with an affront. And there's almost a bit of self-pity, I think, from Diana as she says, well, look how de- degraded I am. Look at my position and my reputation in Indian society. Look that it's come to this for me to be accepting what what she might see in some way as kind of pity or rescue by Stephen. And that's a really mean thing to put on him. Right, right. And, and you know, she's tagged him. I am fond of you. You are a friend that I love. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
it's it's tough. But you know, I think she really is thinking back on herself and her situation. And I think she really does react to how kind Maturin is and and how much perhaps she wishes her life had been different. And unfortunately, she's she's crying. She's got her head on Maturin's shoulder, and Canning comes unannounced into the room. And boy, it's like gasoline, fire, all supercharged all at once. It certainly is. We're back to some of O'Brien's earlier calling on the code of honor between gentlemen and the code of what it means to have a a lady under your protection. Because straight away, Canning says, Mrs. Villiers is under my protection. I give no explanations to any man for kissing a woman, says Maturin, unless it is his wife. And then Canning rushes at Stephen. There's this open-handed blow. Diana freaks out at the two of them. And and Diana is scared to death that Stephen is going to duel Canning because Stephen really, I mean, an open-handed blow and, and, the, and the both of them kind of challenging and ratcheting it up. She knows this is a duel. And we had a couple of foreshadows, you know, even as Stephen is riding the elephant over, the guide is pointing out, oh, and here's where the Europeans duel with each other right over here. Yes. So we've, you know, we keep hearing about this. Um, I I love how uh, Diana is so concerned and she's telling him, you know, Canning's going to apologize. And Stephen says, perhaps he will, my dear, says Stephen. Mm. He is in a sad way entirely, poor fellow. And he opens the window there. He says, I believe I'll go out this way, if I may. I do not altogether trust your tigers. (laughs) It's funny. It makes it all like a theater scene in my head. Right. You know, between the cunning, cunning bursting in on the couple and they're inadvertently in what might look like a compromising position. And then there's the blow and then there's the creeping out through the window. That's a combination of lots of bits of theater set piece stuff. Well, and it's so funny, you know, we, we were just last book right at this tense moment two characters about to duel and we're thinking it doesn't really have to happen although i suspect that uh probably we're not you know pulling for this one to to end quite as much as we were jack and stevens no that's right i don't think we've got nearly as much invested i think we all hope and suspect that stephen can simply fight canning and uh, and be victorious. And Stephen certainly, as he's thinking about it and musing to himself, doesn't seem to regard it as quite such a big deal as he regarded having to fight Jack. And he certainly holds no great admiration or respect for Canning. He um, he doesn't have any great hatred toward Canning or anything. As a matter of fact, no? it, it almost seems like he regards Canning better than a lot of the people that are sucking up to Canning only because of business interests. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are upset with Canning because of his faith. Stephen is not at all. Um, it's, it's kind of sad in a way that they just have kind of collided because they both have this incredible interest in Diana. And Diana seems to be that kind of catalyst between men. Yeah, she brings out the worst. So in situations, I think she she brings out the worst in situations, and in some cases, she brings out the worst in people as well. For sure, it's it's really I I, I don't know whether you, we can say overall does Diana's character bring out the best or the worst in Stephen? I think she brings out both. It's so true, and now talking about different parts of Stephen's character, he almost starts going into this very logical, very you know automated 
Well, here's what you do when you go out. We yeah. know that he's gone out many times, been in many duels. He goes, talks to the captain of the Marines, engages him as a second, just sort of goes about it routinely. And then kind of amazingly walks into the cabin to see Jack. And and we're really transported right away from this duel in in what struck me as kind of an amazing way. And of course, the... the- token between Stephen and Jack that allows them to give give signals and messages about their emotional state without them having to actually use emotional language is music. Yeah. And uh, Stephen says, what do you say to about this evening if you're not too taken up with bollards and capstan bars? <laughs> and by the way, we, we then get a classic Patrick O'Brien line as Jack turns around very lightheartedly to Stephen and says, ah, have you come aboard, my plum? <laughs> Jack is in a state of exuberance because this freight deal means that he's clear of debt and he's on his way back to meet Sophie. And he says, I'm delighted. I'm amazed with all my accounts done, but damn paperwork for today. Had you any music in mind? The Boccherini C major, perhaps. So uh, this is a moment for a discussion about music. Can we talk about music and maybe talk about Boccherini for a second? Well, you know, a number of folks that have been on social media with us, who've been giving us a little feedback in the podcast have said, Let's talk about the music. And I just happen to know a cello player in the UK. (laughs) It'd be very helpful. And I'm talking to him at this moment. You are. You are. So here's the thing. We talked a little bit about the musical detective work um, earlier on when we were reading Master and Commander. This is the volume where Patrick O'Brien decides that the musical uh, undertone for this whole thing is the music of Boccherini. Earlier on, around the action with the French squadron, Jack mentioned having heard Stephen playing something that Jack then recognized as being, to use the words in O'Brien's text, a Boccherini suite in D minor. And here we get a reference to a piece that they're going to share, which is the Boccherini C major quartet. Oh, sorry, no, C major something, the Boccherini C major. Right. And of course, being a music nerd, I'm trying to think, what are those pieces actually He's so particular, Patrick O'Brien, with his reference to real naval actions and to real events in history. There's got to be a real source. And I came up with some puzzles. So first of all, a Boccherini suite in D minor for any instrumentation, as far as I can tell, doesn't exist. Boccherini for sure wrote lots of chamber music. He wrote lots of pieces for the cello. He was a virtuoso cellist, a groundbreaking virtuoso cellist in the late 18th century. Um, He was in the right part of Europe. He was Italian born, but spent a lot of his career in Spain and in Madrid. So he was part of the Spanish culture that was an important part of the context for Stephen. And Boccherini wrote in what you might call the 18th century gallant style that Stephen and Jack both seem to like. They, the furthest along, I think, in musical development that they got was Mozart. I don't think they would have had anything to say if listening to music by Schubert or Berlioz or Beethoven, who were just around the corner in musical development. So they had this slightly backward-looking, slightly pleasingly old-school taste in music, which isn't that unusual, really. It's like somebody in the late 20th century saying that they liked Sibelius. You know, it's music that's 50 years out of date, but you still like it and you still perform it. So I look for a Boccherini suite in D minor. I can't find one. So I think one of two things is happening there. Either he meant a piece by Boccherini, but it's not a suite, in which case... I don't know what Stephen might have been playing. There are lots of Boccherini cello sonatas. Uh, there are duets for violin and cello, and there are 
quartets and quintets as well. There's the very famous C major quintet, which is called Nocturnal Music of the Streets of Madrid, which was used in the movie at the very end of the uh, Peter Weir movie. And here we have a Boccherini piece in C major described, which I think, well, there are C major pieces, none of which really match the descriptions of the movements here. We have a description of a noble and almost desperately sad slow movement. So here's where I got to with this. It's just possible that this D minor suite thing, maybe he didn't mean Boccherini at all. It, I could imagine Patrick O'Brien meaning J.S. Bach, and J.S. Bach wrote suites for the cello. He wrote a very famous suite in D minor for the cello, and it has all of the characteristics that Patrick O'Brien described in this piece that Stephen was heard playing earlier on in the book. I don't think, though, it's very authentic to say that Stephen would have played the Bach cello suites because they weren't very well known in the 19th century. They were certainly within his range as an amateur player. So let's imagine for a second that somehow Stephen did, despite all the evidence, know and enjoy and play the Bach D minor suites. They're, the Bach D, the Bach cello suites are absolutely, they're very, it's very characteristic music for Stephen. They're, they're introspective, sometimes solemn. They're sometimes very joyful and gleeful. They got this connection to archaic dance forms, and we know that Stephen liked dance forms. He talked about folk dancing in Spain a lot. They have these very orderly, abstracted, almost philosophical foundation to them, the Bach cello suites. The Bach cello suites don't have wild romantic vistas. They don't have a great program behind them. So not really sure about the D minor suite reference. This Boccherini C major reference, I'm going to guess that a piece that suits this reference, although it's not in D major, is actually in C major. There's a sonata for cello and violin, it has a slow and sad third movement. It had a last movement that's lovely and complex and triumphant. And I just think Patrick O'Brien's been scattering keys and titles willy-nilly. So on our social media, I'm going to put in some links to the Boccherini C major quintet, which everybody knows from the movie. I'll put in some links to the Bach D minor cello suite that you can enjoy. And we'll put in some links as well to the relevant bits of that Boccherini sonata in D major that might have been the thing that Stephen and Jack played together on this evening. As Stephen's kind of farewell to the day on the day on which he's decided that he's going to fight Camille. Yeah. And so as you guys listen to some of that, that some of the links that Ian posts on social media, you can come back to the text and say, let me see if I can find that brilliant heart-lifting movement, you know, the, the lovely complexity of sound, the near desperation of the adagio, the such fire and attack and height of the majestic triumphant close. Let's see what we're going for here or just enjoy that music the way that Aubrey and Matron certainly did. They did. And it is lovely music. Boccherini is a great choice for the, for the role that Patrick O'Brien wants the music to play at this stage. So great. Well done him. We can forgive him a few random choices of keys and random references. It is fascinating that somebody that takes such incredible painstaking detail with the naval engagements seems to sling, as you say, the music a little willy nilly, but at least gets the emotion right. We like that a lot. Yeah, well, definitely. Speaking of the emotion, they finish playing, you know, Jack is saying, Lord Stephen, you know, we've never played so well. It's a noble piece. I revere that man. And then Stephen kind of cuts over and tells Jack that he's fighting Canning in the morning and wants to give him his most important personal papers in case he doesn't make it. And Mm. Jack says, oh, Stephen, 
this is a damn black ending to the sweetest day. So we've got the, you know, the scene with Canning, this incredible music shared between these two great friends, and then this ending coming to a close on the day. <sighs> so we're back in a familiar place with Stephen facing danger in a duel and Jack and Stephen and their love interest, in this case, Diana, asking questions of each other. Yeah, although I think a number of people have tried to intercede here to say, let's try to get this thing not to happen. But clearly, Canning is having none of it. And and Stephen, I think, is just sort of going about his business. We've talked about him in situations like this, almost becoming a little bit reptilian. Um, he doesn't yeah. seem to be quite that way, but he's just pressing steady on because this is the code. It is. And he goes into the duel expecting that... With God's grace, he will just nick Canning's arm. Yeah. And although he says this is, you know, he calls down a potential blasphemy upon himself, but he says, hopefully, with a, with a bit of good luck, I can just nick the guy's arm and we can get past this and move on. Yeah, although he, he fully expects Canning to be shooting to kill him, which is a fascinating yes. thing to me to go in there, especially when they get to the actual duel itself the next morning. Yeah. Um, and we get the duel described from Stephen's first-person perspective as well. There's no distance here. We are right up there with Stephen. Canning's arm comes up. Stephen sees the flash. And as the book says, there's an enormous impact on his side and across his breast that comes at the same moment as the report of the gun. He staggered, shifted his unfired pistol to his left hand, changed his stance. He saw Canning plain, head high, thrown back with the Roman emperor air. The barrel came true and wavered a trifle and then steadied. His mouth tightened and he fired. Canning went straight down, rose to his hands and knees calling for his second pistol, and then fell again. Yeah. This thing of Stephen standing there watching Canning fire yeah. and not firing back, waiting to be hit, then continuing to stand and changing hands so as to be able, I suspect, to aim better to try to yeah. you know, to try again just to wing this guy on the arm. Yeah. Amazing. And he's really dejected when he realizes very, very quickly from the wound and the pool of blood that Canning's dead. And he has this look of utter dejection. Yeah. Yeah. Even even was... remarks later that, you know, clearly he had missed. You know, his aim was not true given the condition that he was in. Oh, that's oh. right. So and Stephen has to go back aboard ship. He's wounded. The pistol ball is lodged underneath his ribcage high up in his abdomen. And Diana is aware of this and she comes to visit Jack. And Diana, Diana's coming asking for help from Jack. And I think she gets her just desserts a little bit when Jack says, I'd like to help you, but I really can't. I can't take you aboard ship. You can go aboard the Lushington. You can take a cabin to go home. And she flings out these really catty insults at Jack, calling him a coward, calling him a scrub, and even causing Jack to doubt himself. He asks himself the question, am I really a scrub? Am I... Am I less of a man for taking the position that I've taken with regard to her? Is my my attitude to her colored by the fact that I pursued her a little while ago and she rejected me? And that's a, an unusual uh, but very apposite bit of self-reflection, I think, there by Jack. And again, this is the novel where Jack is mature and insightful. And he's got some mature and insightful thoughts, I think, about himself and Diana. He does. You know, he's, he's kind of a, you know, sees Diana and feels so holier than thou and righteous and realizes, wait a minute, you know, 
I, I, I'm thinking about even myself with this woman just a short while ago. Yeah, I, I certainly can't place myself above her. And then kind of looking at her and how she manages to comport herself, even in this horrific time, um, he thinks about her courage and the incredible yeah. courage that she has and, you know, gets stirred a little bit again. So as you say, an amazing, uh, you know, Jack with this insightful notion and Diana with this impact that she has on men. Yeah, very striking. Meanwhile, the impact on Stephen is that he's sick and he needs surgery. And going back, you said earlier on, Mike, about this uh, idea of Stephen getting very detached and very neutral, almost cold in his attitude to the way the duel is playing out and towards the injury itself. We get this almost unbelievable position that Stephen takes of saying, I'm going to take care of this surgery. He needs the bullet removed. Jack says, can I get the, the Fort William man, the local physician, the local surgeon to come and stand by? And Stephen says, I do this with my own hand. If it could undertake the one task, it must undertake the other. That is but justice. Yeah. This incredible scene, you know, with Stephen having designed an instrument that he can use himself to dig under, you know, get past his ribs, this bullet, which is lodged way up in there somewhere, this huge mirror on the ceiling, assisted only by McAllister and, you know, one of his helpers on the ship there. But you kind of wonder, how did, how did, O'Brien imagine this, all of this. <laughs> well, it's funny. I went looking for examples of self-surgery. And one of the first things that comes up is that there have been documented occasions when surgeons have operated on themselves. But a significant factor in self-surgery is mental derangement. It's a, it's a sign of psychosis just to have the, <laughs> the, the, the coldness and the detachment to be able to cut into your own flesh. Wow. So we, mm, we're getting, I'm getting the hint here that this idea of self-surgery is a really, really extreme behavior for a human. And I did come across one documented case that was early 19th century and also had some features about it that made me think this could have been uh, an incident that O'Brien might have read about. There was a military surgeon, a French military surgeon called Baron de Maldigny, who was an aristocrat who suffered recurrent bladder stones. And I don't know if any of you have ever had a stone anywhere in your bladder or your kidneys, but that's excruciatingly painful. And this guy had already, by the age of 27, endured five operations. So he decided to cut the sixth stone himself. And he even mentions the role of the mirror and all the preparations that he had. I'm going to read this out to you. And if you're upset by gruesome descriptions of surgery and descriptions of the male anatomy. Uh, turn the volume down for the next 10 seconds. A little trigger Fixed warning. In my resolution, <laughs> Fixed in my resolution, said de Maldigny, after having made the necessary preparations, I placed myself before a looking glass. I raised the scrotum with the left hand, which stretched the skin of the perineum, and at that part where the operation for the stone is performed, I forced in perpendicularly the point of a bisturi, a bisturi is a surgeon's knife, until it came against the stone. And oh, if you know which part of the body we're talking about, and you can imagine point piercing yourself with a surgeon's knife there, yikes. But anyway, after a bit of digging and scraping and oh, stuff that I don't want to talk about. Right. Um, de Maldigny actually had a successful outcome. He says, being perfectly relieved from my pain, I fell into a sound sleep. And on the following day, I was as tranquil and as cheerful as if I had never suffered. And that 
appears to have been the case with Stephen. Uh, now, Jack was there, wasn't he? Jack Jack was there. Um, and, and Jack comes in to say, you know, since he can't convince him to get the hospital folks from on shore to come, he says, well, you know, what can I do? And and Stephen's saying, well, Jack, you know, are you used to the sight of the blood? And Jack's saying, you know, oh, I've seen it since I was a midshipman. I was a youngster. Yeah. Uh, but this has quite the impact on Jack. You know, O'Brien writes, blood he had seen to be sure, but not blood, not this cold, deliberate ooze and the slow track of the searching knife and probe, nor had he heard anything like the grind of the demiloon on living bone a few inches from his ear as he leant over the wound, his head bent low, not to obscure Stephen's view in the mirror. I mean, he just really is taken by this thing. And afterwards, he's he's talking to Bonded, and he says, Bonded, you know, he opened himself slowly with his own hands right to the heart. I saw it beating there. And and Bonded, you know, seeing his <laughs> captain take it up in this moment, says, oh, there's surgery for you. <laughs> Bonded. It wouldn't surprise any old Sophie, however. Such a learned article. You remember the gunner, sir? Never let it put you <laughs> off your dinner. He'll be just as right as a trivet. Never you fret, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great. I love the fact that Bond and representing the views of all seamen who've ever sailed with Jack, but right. there's nothing, there's nothing that Stephen can't do if the tide hasn't turned, um, even to save himself. And I like the fact as well that Bonden's becoming a confidant. If we look at the yeah. time when Bonden appears, he's in conversation either when Stephen's teaching him to read or in very candid, very friendly conversations like this. He's maturing out of being simply the coxswain, a part of the crew, into being part of the personal network of Jack and Stephen, which I really like. I really admire Bonden. Absolutely. You know, and again, as we were talking through that earlier on the surgery, I thought I, I saw the orange glow of our Russell Crowe alert light going off somewhere. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Um, the self-surgery was portrayed in Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Poor old Paul Bettany <laughs> had to go through this business of presenting to the world a surgeon operating on himself. The reason for the bullet being there was different. The setting was different. They were in the Pacific and the, near the Galapagos Islands. But the same thing with Jack looking on aghast and the mirror and the musket ball and getting it all out intact. It was absolutely there in the movie. And that was obviously a, a really great visual moment that Peter Weir didn't want to leave out of any movie that involved Stephen Maturin. Yeah, it's funny how he cherry picked around, you know, so many of the early books of the canon to put that movie together. So, Stephen's surgery was successful, but he can't escape the perils of nineteenth-century surgery infection. Yeah, and although for the first day or two he's quite lucid, and he gets the chance to send a note to Diana in Jack's hand, he falls into a fever, and. Again, this is this is a novel where the turns of Stephen's character all edged into darkness and introspection and, uh, and some really gloomy places. And there's this very distressing description of Stephen becoming delirious and speaking out loud these terrible truths about himself and his life and others, sometimes in Latin and sometimes in English and sometimes in other languages. And Jack is a little bit aware of Stephen's life as an intelligence agent and how some of this stuff is going to be confidential and also very, very personally sensitive. And Jack takes it on himself 
to sit in with Stephen while he's going through this delirious stage of fever. Yeah, it's so touching the way Jack is there just day and night, day and night, caring for Stephen. Yeah. Because as as you say, he's you know, he knows he has some secrets. He wants to care for him and he and he knows how proud Stephen is. <laughs> he says he's yeah. you know, prouder perhaps <laughs> than the devil. And, you know, Stephen would not want people to hear him talking like that. And even Jack at times thinks, I don't want to hear him talking like that because this is this is not my idea, Stephen. Um, no, no. And he's, he's pretty candid in these delirious moments about Jack as well. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah, Jack Aubrey, you will pierce yourself with your own weapon. And he doesn't mean a military weapon. <laughs> right. No, a bottle of wine in you and you'll go to bed with the next wench that shows a gleam. <laughs> and you'll Absolutely. quit regretting it all your days you do not know chastity he's saying unconsciously oh. to jack <laughs> oops and, oh. and jack has to listen as i mean i presume that jack knows enough latin to pick up on the meaning of some of the quotes i've got a feeling there's a bit of patrick o'brien introspection in some of this as well um stephen starts quoting the Aeneid, which i think is an o'brien signature text he begins with of arms and the man i sing which was a quote that was used by mad cousin lounge back in mm. post captain and then that final quote, but his limbs became numb with the cold and his life, disdaining to bear this, fled down into the shadows with a sigh. Oh, man. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's pretty dark. Well, and in true O'Brien style, before we get to the delirious Stephen, you know, Diana has come on board. She's seen to Stephen. They have a wonderful conversation. They agree to meet in Madeira. She's going ahead on the Lushington. And then, boom, delirium and all of this darkness. So O'Brien once yeah. again setting us up here. Yeah. Luckily, Stephen recovers. Unfortunately, it's not quite the Stephen who is so delighted and happy and looking forward to getting to Madeira and everything's going to be fine. No. Turns out that he's a great doctor, but a horrible patient. <laughs> we saw this a little bit at the beginning of this book, didn't we? When he was in London yes. recovering from the torture. Exactly. But even more so now, he's the most cantankerous devil. Right. He's he's just giving everybody a fit and he'll just, you know, he'll lash out and people are kind of staying away from him, but they all love him. So they're taking good care of him. As a matter of fact, when the parson beats him in chess one day, because the parson <laughs> is so afraid that Stephen is going to lash out him if he doesn't play well, you know, then everybody is all over the parson for, you know, taking this invalid and beating him in chess. But finally, we have another great natural philosopher movement where Stephen, not unlike his time on the rock with the uh, with the birds and the burning, becomes recovered by another trip to an island where Jack and his crew have this island that is kind of all over the map, literally. Nobody can quite plot it. And they decide they want to get to the chart and and lay this thing down precisely where it is. And while they're doing all their navigating, all of which kind of befuddles me a little bit, um, Stephen has been taken and placed aside. And when they come back to get him, he's made, he says, his greatest discovery of his life. And it's not a sloth. <laughs> it's not. And it's not a vampire. <laughs> oh, not even a great ape. No, this is another Russell Crowe alert as well. Again, in a different part of the world, in a different context, we have this discovery of Stephen saying, I have discovered a tortoise. I, I think I believe uh, previously undiscovered giant tortoise more in the Galapagos than I believe it in the uh, in the Comoros Islands, but never mind. Testudo Aubrey. 
or Aubrey I. I'm not sure what you what you would say there. The no. great land tortoise of the world, a new genus. He is unknown to science, and in comparison to him, your giants of Rodriguez and Aldabra are inconsiderable reptiles. He weighs a ton. I do not know that I have ever been so happy. I am in such spirits, Jack. How you will ever get him aboard, I cannot tell, but nothing is impossible to the Navy. <laughs> Jack says, must we get him on board? <laughs> so Stephen very knowingly names the names the tortoise Testudo Aubrey, meaning the tortoise of Aubrey, as a little sweetener, I think, for persuading Jack that it would be worth <laughs> the effort of winching this ton aboard the ship. And of course, Jack finds it really hard to resist, so he does. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, we've had so many of these natural philosophy events come up. We kind of wondered, like we have with medicine, with naval battles, with music. Gosh, is this, you know, how precise is this? Could this have happened? And luckily, on the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society in Facebook, you know, like the gunroom.org, we've we found great experts. And so we've got a naturalist that we've been talking to who has been able to clue us in on on some of these events like this tortoise. And as it turns out, it, on remote islands like this, you do get either uh, dwarfism or giantism all over on remote islands so that it's not unheard of. While it may not have been an actual specific reference here, not unheard of. And hopefully down the road, uh, uh, some number of episodes, perhaps a book or two from now, we're going to hear from our natural philosopher and do a sweep back through some of the early books and some of the natural philosophy that we've been talking Ooh, through. I feel a special guest coming on. Yeah, looking forward to that. Fantastic. We also have a little bit of another kind of natural philosophy as Jack and Lieutenant Sturton are trying to pin down the longitude of this island. By the way, uh, Tom's Cannonade.net website calls this Nelson's Island. It's one of several islands that are called Nelson's Island. And the longitude in the real world is 72 degrees, 18 minutes and 39 seconds east. Um, they're trying to pin it down by means of celestial navigation. They're taking advantage of clear weather and the alignment of the moon and of Venus, I guess. So we might come back to that as well, because mathematics and astronomy and celestial navigation are becoming more and more of a passion for Jack. So speaking of passion for Jack, Jack's one remaining passion to be I don't know, indulged, fulfilled, consummated, <laughs> is his hoped for engagement and marriage to Sophie. So the voyage progresses pretty quickly now, doesn't it? The surprise makes it back around the Cape of Good Hope and into the Atlantic and on the way to Madeira. And along the way, they encounter other vessels, they encounter a rock with a signal station, and they're hoping, hoping, hoping that somebody somewhere has news of the progress of the Lushington, and more importantly, of the progress of a British squadron carrying, we hope, Sophie to meet with Jack at Madeira. Yeah. Yeah, you've got this kind of, uh, they're so looking forward to getting to see their, you know, the loves of their lives. And, and both of them also with a little bit of tension, a little bit of dread, like what if this doesn't work out? And they finally get to Madeira and there is no Sophie. And there is no letter for Jack, which we're a little stunned about. But then, you know, the the people there say, but we do have a letter for a Maturin mm. on board the surprise. Uh, Stephen says, that's me. And he has a letter from Diana. And he can tell from the envelope that the ring that he had given to Diana 
is in the envelope. He doesn't really say a word. He heads off. Apparently, this is a really tall island, and he just continues to climb and climb and climb all day uh, to get to the top of this thing and finally sits down to read it um, and has indeed what he knows is the case that Diana has headed off. He ends up sleeping on the mountaintop in the cold. He's kind of removed. It, it gets to him at first, and then you see him just kick back into this. Nope, nope, nope. I can't, uh, no, no weakness. Yep. You know, kind of this stoic thing. He yep. returns down the mountain the next day after having buried this ring now. He's not taking it with him. The, the wind has taken the letter off and meets Jack and tells him the story. Um, and it's kind of a, a, to me, a very sad encounter. It so is. Um, yeah, they sat down too heavy and stupid to be embarrassed. Stephen said, I must tell you this. Diana has gone to America with a Mr. Johnstone of Virginia, there to be married. She was under no engagement to me. It was only her kindness to me in Calcutta that let my mind run too far. My wits were astray. I'm in no way aggrieved. I drink to her. They finish their bottle and another, but it had no effect of any kind. And they rowed back to the ship as silently as they had come. No doubt. Oh, man. Yeah, Jack thinking, oh my gosh, am I about to face the same news as Stephen? Stephen trying to, to deal with his. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're really caught up. Yeah, and a, another layer of emotional scar tissue for Stephen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well put. Ian. We feel this sadness for Stephen. We felt it all the way through. Every, every attempt that he's made at reconciling with Diana, at giving, giving out jewelry, at making any kind of emotional peace for himself has been met with defeat and humiliation. And here is yet another, and we get, as I said, this an, another layer of scar tissue around Stephen's heart. And you have to see that this is forming a character in Stephen that must have to be so hardened and withdrawn and protective of his own well-being. And mind you, Jack's not in much better shape thinking that he's got to Madeira with no letter from Sophie. And all these stories about how nice women don't marry sailor blokes like me. They marry witty coves like lawyers and Parsons. And then he gets this really inadvertently glowing reference to Parson Hinksy, um, who has been calling on Sophie. And he can just think That's right. of the, the the writing on the wall for him and Sophie. If there's this witty, witty, good-looking, well-regarded, kind, generous, thoughtful, philanthropic, good-looking, tall, intelligent, blah, blah, blah. Parson calling on Sophie. He's thinking, that's it. I've had it now. Yeah, this is, it doesn't bode well. Stephen tries to cheer him up by suggesting that perhaps the, the letter never got there. And, you know, Jack, it says, looks at him affectionately, but tells him that he knows that it got there six weeks ago. So um, yeah. he's, you know, Jack is feeling like his luck has run out. And in his desperation, he looks at Stephen and says, of course, what do you say to a tune? And Stephen says, with all my heart. They soared away through their Corelli, through their Hummel, and Jack had his bow poised for Boccherini, composer of the week, when he brought it screeching down. That was a gun. Yeah. So they're, they're into their music, and a cannon has fired somewhere off in the distance. What could it mean? Well, we, we get another funny moment with the signal flags. 
after discovering that they've inadvertently snuck up on an English squadron and been bawled out by the officer in charge of the squadron, they find that one of the rear station ships in this squadron is commanded by Henage Dundas. I think it's the Athalian. And there's a message and the signal midshipman says, ah, okay, I have this signal, sir. Captain, surprise, I have two wool. No, sir, women. Next hoist. One young. Please come to breakfast. <laughs> That's a signal to gladden the heart. <laughs> two women come to breakfast. Yes, yes, yes. So guess what? Sophie is aboard the Italian. Thank you, Henry Dundas, for bringing her <laughs> at long last to Jack. And Jack says, well, we have a parson aboard. Let's get hitched right now. And I love this speech from Sophie. No, my dear, properly and at home. And with Mama's consent, yes, whenever you like. She'll never refuse now, and I did promise it. The minute we get home, you shall marry me in Champflower Church, if you really wish it. But if you don't, I will sail round and round the world with you, my dear. Ah, but then she asks, what about Stephen? Yeah, and, and Jack relays to her. Stephen, Lord, sweetheart, what a selfish brute I am. A most shocking damn thing has happened. He thought he was to marry her. He longed to marry her. It was quite understood, I believe. She was coming home in an Indiaman, and at Madeira, she left her and bolted with an American, a very rich American, they say, and it was the best thing that could have possibly happened for him. But I would give my right hand to have her back. He looks so low. Mm -hmm. Sophie, it would break your heart to see him. But you will be kind, dear, I know. And her eyes filled with tears. So we've still got this really, really bittersweet story going on with Stephen, even as Jack and Sophie are, are about to start the next chapter of their lives. Uh, of, of course, this being a moment of importance in the story, everybody sits down to a meal. And at breakfast, Henry Dundas and Jack tell each other the stories of their naval exploits. And Jack's holding Sophie's hand under the table, which is very sweet. Yeah, And maybe you can take us home, Mike, with a, with a little exchange at the end as Jack is telling the story of where he's been with HMS Surprise. Yeah, I, I love that. They, you know, they're always doing the ship's positions in, you know, in oil, in something else, this time in toast. While he's got Sophie's hand with his right hand, he's moving the toast with his left hand. They go out on deck. Stephen and Sophie are waving at each other. You know, how are you? How are you? And Jack says, Hunnage, I'm so very obliged to you, so deeply obliged. Now I have to run Sophie and my treasure home, and the future is pure paradise. A great O'Brien happy ending. A great O'Brien happy ending, which makes me sort of lurch back in my chair and say, oh my God, what's next? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's only one way to find out. I think we need to reach up to the shelf one more time. And what do you say, Mike? Shall we reach down for another Patrick O'Brien next time? Ah, with all my heart. too close to my bathroom.
okay, wonderful. Just make sure you wash your hands. <laughs>